what is going on? Happy Tuesday. Thanks so much for being a part of the show, for listening. I appreciate it. Letting me be a part of your day. Pete Callender here, News Talk 1110-993-WBT. All the stupid things that I have seen on Twitter. I'm going to write a book. (laughs) (laughs) Well, why even write a book? Nobody's going to buy a book just of tweets that are so stupid. Uh, when you could just go to Twitter and see said stupid tweets in real time, and it constantly refreshes itself. It's really amazing. Does the book have to be 280 characters? No, 280 pages, maybe. So did you hear the pushback from the White House about uh, the word stranded? The word stranded. This is what Jen Psaki pushed back against, uh, I think it was Peter Ducey from Fox News who used the word stranded, and she was like, they're not stranded. And so, like, of course, Americans who are still in Afghanistan and cannot get to the airport, and and the government has no exfiltration plan to get them out, they're trying, they're working with different groups, and it's all hodgepodge, there was no coordinated mass plan in effect before, like, a week ago, right? So, yes... They've been stranded there. Does that mean permanently, though? This is the stupidity that I saw today on Twitter, where some moron says if they're being picked up, then they're not stranded. (laughs) You see, once you're stranded, that's a permanent state. It can never change. And to prove this, he... He posted a, uh, an image of the definition of the word stranded. And here's the definition that this person posted. It says, left without the means to move from somewhere. And then the example used in a sentence is, she offers a lift to a stranded commuter. <laughs> Which is literally the definition of what is happening right now, right? <laughs> It's literally, that is a description of the events on the ground in Afghanistan. Left without the means to move from somewhere. Yes, they're trying to get out. They are stranded. They have no means to move from the somewhere. And the example is literally the same thing. She offers, instead of she, let's say the U.S., offers a lift to a stranded Diplomat. Let's call it, instead of a commuter, a diplomat. A commuter would actually indicate that the commuter had a means of transport, which then, I guess, broke down or was somehow rendered inoperable, and so now they cannot commute. So they are stranded. See, apparently, once you get rescued, then you never were stranded. That's the way this person's... This is what people do. This is, And the reason I highlight this example of stupidity is because this is what people do when they cannot face truth. This is the problem. When presented with actual evidence, like the definition of a word, and as it applies to what we're seeing in Afghanistan, the people that are trying to get out but cannot are stranded. And the White House says, they're not stranded. Don't don't, don't say stranded. And you have... 
Everybody falling in line with that talking point. That's not stranded. Of course not. Jed Psaki, she's circling back. She circled right back and said that's not stranded. Stranded means a very specific thing. And here's the definition of stranded, which actually is the thing that you're describing. But it's not the thing that you're describing in this case because Jen Psaki said it's not. And that's good enough for me. This is where we are. Nothing matters. Words don't have meaning. Right? We are in a post-truth society. Postmodernists rejoice. This is the chaos that we are all forced to suffer through now because there are a bunch of people that have been working very hard to tear down the institutions that built our society and that undergird our society, and uh, their aim is to replace these institutions with institutions of their own making with them in charge. It's always the play. It's always the play, which is sort of the, the, uh, the ironic contradiction inherent in the postmodernists teaming up with the Marxism. It's it's an inherently contradictory alliance, but it serves one purpose, which is to put them in charge. Hence, the one goal they share. Um, This also, the FBI has found scant evidence that the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol was the result of an organized plot to overturn the presidential result according to four current and former law enforcement officials. This is Reuters, that bastion of right-wing journalism. (laughs) Reuters with this report stating, though federal officials have arrested more than 570 alleged participants, the FBI at this point believes the violence was not centrally coordinated. No, really? Oh, well, that's... That's interesting because I remember watching the video and I could tell that right away. (laughs) This is obviously not any kind of a coordinated attack. You know what tipped me off? The lack of coordination. That's what tipped me off. But I'm not, you know, a military planner or a reporter, which they are equally qualified to make these determinations. And uh, I, I could just see, like, these people are, like, wandering around the Capitol. They're like, it's it's like... It's like the crazy people that took over that school board meeting in Buncombe County the other day, a couple weeks ago. You see them? They're like, we're now the school board. We're going to hold an election because they saw some random stupid video from some other place that did this. So they're like, we're going to replicate this in Buncombe County. And, you know, it's all over the masking and all over the vaccines and stuff. And so then they like the the school board adjourns because, you know, the whole room is in chaos. And so then the people who are creating the chaos, they go down to the well and they're like, now we're in charge. We're the school board and you're now the district one rep and you're the district two rep and we're going to vote. And look at that. We win. Yay. Us. Like This is just stupidity. I'm not going to call it anything less than that. So yes, I looked at the non-coordinated nature of the attack of the riot and I could tell it was not very coordinated. Now that's not to say there weren't some people that may have had some plans, which the FBI apparently does do. And by the way, FBI, not exactly the most credible source for me either. So I bring this to you with a grain of salt because the FBI has so besmirched themselves over the last five years that uh, I find it very difficult to believe almost anything that they say. And that's not my fault. That's the FBI's fault. And the fact that they haven't held anybody accountable for any of the lies that they put America through because orange man bad.
News Talk 1110-993 WBT. According to Reuters, citing four current and former law enforcement officials, uh, 90 to 95 percent of the people that they arrested after the January 6th insurrection of the 570 alleged participants, 90 to 95 percent of them are what they call one-off cases. Then you have five, maybe 5% of these militia groups that were more closely organized, but there was no grand scheme with, you know, Roger Stone or Alex Jones and all of these other people to storm the Capitol and to take hostages. Um, I do wonder, by the way, for folks who dismiss the seriousness of what we saw, and I'm not one who does that uh, because I hold... I hold the January 6th rioters to the same standard that I hold the Antifa and Black Lives Matter rioters. You don't get to engage in that kind of uh, behavior and then get any kind of benefit of the doubt that, oh, no, no, I was totally not going to do anything. Yeah, I don't I don't believe you. Um, And so, like, I do wonder what would have happened had they actually run into Mike Pence or Nancy Pelosi in the hallway. What do you think would have happened? Nothing? Oh, they just would have been like yelling at her and they would have just let her go. You think that might have you think that's what would have happened? I'm not so sure. But I don't know. But I'm not and I'm not going to, you know, make assumptions about what definitely would have happened, but I suspect there might have been some people that might have gotten carried away cuz that's what mobs do, right? Okay. So, uh Stone, Roger Stone, a veteran Republican operative and self-described dirty trickster, and Alex Jones, founder of the conspiracy-driven radio show, which actually isn't even really a radio show and webcast. It's just basically a, a commercial. Everything's just a commercial for his supplements. Um, both allies of Trump and had been involved in pro-Trump events in Washington on January 5th. FBI investigators did find that cells of protesters, including followers of the far-right Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys groups, had aimed to break into the Capitol, but they found no evidence that the groups had serious plans about what to do if they made it inside. Worst insurrection ever! My gosh. All right, guys, so we're going we're gonna to use this Lego model here, all right? And this is the Capitol, and here's you, Joe, and then this one over here is you, Stan. Oh, I want to be that character. Okay, you could be that character. All right, we're going to we're going to go in. We're going to break the window, and we're going to get in. And then some stuff is going to happen, and then we win. Like that's the way it happens. Like th- this is the plan. <laughs> Prosecutors have filed conspiracy charges against forty defendants out of five hundred seventy, alleging that they engaged in some degree of planning, some degree. Don't know what degree, but some degree. But so far, prosecutors have steered clear of more serious, politically loaded charges that the sources said had been initially discussed by prosecutors, such as seditious conspiracy or racketeering. Now, uh, the real takeaway here from this story is that these folks, once they get put onto their probation um, for these these charges, whatever that they're going to probably plead guilty to, uh, or even even if they try to fight it and they They get sentenced, and then they get put on parole or something. In North Carolina, thanks to a couple of judges, they're going to get to vote, which I'm sure the left is super excited about, right? Because that's what you guys are all excited about, getting everybody to vote, even while you're still serving your term. 
<laughs> your your sentence. Let me jump over here and get Bob on before the news. Hello, Bob. Welcome to the shoe. How are you? Bob. Hey, how are you? I'm doing very well on yourself. I am doing almost as well. I'm doing good. Well, I was going to have a comment about uh, the Taliban. Okay. And who's, um, I don't know what to call it anymore because Jen Psaki doesn't know what it is either. But with all those people left over in Afghanistan, how many of them are Caucasian? And does our joint use of staff consider them inexpendable if they're Caucasian just because they're oppressors? I have no idea. I don't think that they would. I think that would be a stretch. I don't think so. Look at you what don't think that's a stretch, you know, Bob? You all don't. All the work that's going on in the military, we got to go look for those Trump supporters. Right, but these are these are State Department diplomats. Do you think that they're Trump supporters? I have no idea where they're from, but they're, they're well. If they're from state, chances white. are they're not even Republicans. <laughs> so, well, I mean, seriously. I'm serious too. You know, I'm just actually I'm not that serious, but okay. I'm just curious. Yeah. No, I, I I doubt they're making this to lift a finger to help anybody. No, I doubt. See, I think this is more about uh, government and bureaucrats than it is about wokeism and racism. Uh, I appreciate the call, Bob. I I, I don't think that they're looking at the racial demographics of the people that are stranded there. Uh, oh, sorry. Did I say stranded? That means, but I kind of did mean stranded because that's what it actually is. News Talk 1110-993-WBT. I want to welcome to the show a friend of mine, Dr. Andy Jackson. He is the director of the Civitas Center for Public Integrity over at the John Locke Foundation. You can read his work at johnlocke.org. Andy, how are you? I'm doing great. How about yourself? I am doing well. So I've noticed you've been uh, you've been appearing in a lot of legislative public comment uh, periods. Like, that means you got to wear a blazer and a tie. Uh, yeah. And it's the same blazer every time. It's my <laughs> General Assembly blazer. That's right. So uh, I wanted to have you on to talk about uh, this ruling that came down from this three-judge panel. And I'm a little unclear. This is about felon voting. People who have finished their prison sentences, felony prison sentences, but if they're still on probation or they're on parole, they'll they'll now be allowed to vote in elections, to register and to vote in elections. And this is from a... Three-judge panel. It was a two-to-one decision. Who are these judges? Um, well, they're judges from uh, Wake County Superior Court. Um, and an issue that we do have emerging that people are going to have to start talking about is that all these election cases are going through Wake County. Um, and Wake County is changing. It's changed a lot to where it's sufficiently different than the rest of the state that maybe we should start distributing these election cases uh, to get maybe you know some fresh eyes on those things. Is that your nonpartisan think tank way of saying that all of the judges in Wake County tend to uh, skew towards a certain political affiliation and might be uh, operating under a different judicial philosophy? Uh, that is indeed the case. And, I th- and I'm not saying that Wake County should be excluded from hearing elections cases, but I certainly think the state would benefit from a broader perspective on these things. Right. And that's what was kind of surprising to me. Like I was looking around and I thought when I saw like Wake County Superior Court judge and, I, and I, I've noticed it's it's vague and ambiguous in almost all of the reporting that I've seen as to who these judges are. But this is now 
this is popping up a lot of, in a lot of different kinds of cases. I think there was wasn't there was the uh, there was a Wake County judge that also did this with the voter ID stuff, right? Or, or the illegitimate uh, or usurper legislature, right? Wasn't that a, a local judge yeah. too? Yep, that was Brian Collins, also of Wake County, and he was also the judge in the case where the, uh, the North Carolina State Board of Elections entered a collusive lawsuit settlement with settlement with uh, Democratic Attorney Mark Elias just before the election. So Wake County pops up a lot on these things. Shocking. Um, all righty. So uh, first off, what does the ruling do, uh, uh, and how does that square with what the law has been? Okay, well, the short answer is we're not exactly sure the mechanisms involved because they haven't actually written the case yet. They just announced their decision. Um, And in essence, they granted (laughs) everything the plaintiffs asked for, which is essentially uh, any person who is still serving their felony sentence but is not physically in prison uh, can vote. Uh, And so that that was the law. We had the law in in place where if you're still serving probation, um, or parole, uh, once you're fully out of the system, at that point, your voting rights are automatically restored. Um, now, it's important to note that felony disenfranchisement is not in the law. It's in the North Carolina Constitution. What they overthrew was, wasn't felon disenfranchisement. What they overturned, I should say, uh, was the law that was granting the right to vote for felons once they've exited the system. Uh, and so it's going to be interesting how they're going to be able to to figure out how you're going to rule this way without actually rewriting the law from the bench. So, all right. So, I, I forgive me, but it sounded like you said that the opinion has not been written yet, and that's just that sounds kind of crazy. So, if you want to just kind of elaborate on that or or correct that. Then. Well, well, the, yeah. Basically, they they said what the end result is, but they haven't shared our reasoning, uh, their reasoning on that yet. So nobody can really figure out exactly or know exactly why they're doing that way. What aspect of the law is unconstitutional, or if they're trying to say even go as far as say that part of the North Carolina Constitution is unconstitutional? Uh, we we just don't know. I mean, there is there is actually a judicial theory that says parts of the Constitution can be unconstitutional. I don't know if they're, you know, subscribing to that theory or not. Uh, we just don't know until they tell us, you know, the reasons for that. And the fact that they issued the opinion uh, before telling us why they're, they're doing the opinion actually had an effect on how this is going to progress because Josh Stein is no longer represent. He's the attorney general for North Carolina. He had been representing the state in the case. And he has essentially been fired by the general leadership of the General Assembly because he doesn't want to um, appeal this until after we hear the reasoning from the judges. And, of course, by then, a whole lot of stuff could happen. A lot of people could get registered. Uh, the legislative leaders want to stay where they want basically a stop on that opinion until a higher court can look at it. Yeah, because then you would end up with sort of the Brett Kavanaugh kind of reasoning like, oh, well, we're already doing this, so we don't think this is cool, but it's already underway, so we'll just let it kind of ride, uh, take its course. We'll just ride it out. Um, yeah, and, and and so Josh Stein is now fired, which honestly, I'm okay with that. <laughs> I'm okay <laughs> with uh, the attorney general because, like, honestly, he hasn't done such a bang-up job representing the Republican legislature on some other cases. Yeah, that is true. And, and so, you know, pe- people do question whether his heart is in it. And so it's probably for the best that you have 
as they say, somebody that will jealously advocate for uh, the General Assembly's position and actually defend the law as written. Yeah. Um, and so this is a constitutional provision, and I thought you made a, uh, a decent argument in one of your—you uh, did an interview over at the John Locke Foundation uh, website uh, talking about David Lewis, former state lawmaker, powerful state lawmaker, who just pleaded guilty to some uh, campaign finance shenanigans. I have the story here. We'll get into that. But you made the point about his case, like, he's not serving any prison time, so under this ruling, he gets to vote, Right. He does get the vote, and um, an interesting thing is, and I found out, I'm sorry, I'll go down a rabbit hole real quick, is he wasn't able to vote um, in the last election in the fall of 2020, even though he hadn't been sentenced, because the Constitution says any person that's found guilty uh, of a felony. So from the time you're found guilty, uh, your voting rights are taken away under the North Carolina Constitution. But um, the way it looks like for this ruling, and once again, we're not 100% sure where they're coming from because they haven't told us where they're coming from, is that anybody on probation or parole will have their voting rights restored. So David Lewis, who, was gonna, who is now serving two years of probation for his crime, uh, will have his voting rights restored immediately. He'll be able to register to vote again or actually have his registration uh, become active again and start voting right away. Well, it's, yeah, it, they're making this argument essentially that incarceration is a different kind of the sentence than parole and probation. In other words, you can get sentenced to time plus probation, but if you're in the jail, then you can't vote. But if you're out of the jail, then you can. And honestly, that I mean, that's just a geographical kind of uh, argument. It's got nothing to do with the principle of the matter, which is that you've been convicted of a crime of a felony and your sentence is this like this tot- this total sentence you should not get to vote just because of geography if you're i guess to me what i see here is this opens the door to allow people who are actually incarcerated to continue voting because why wouldn't you yeah i mean the, the same logic applies there right um, and we have to remember uh first of all uh disenfranchisement based on a criminal conviction is enshrined in the 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. States are permitted to do that. Um, and as I've already mentioned, uh, this particular thing about a felony conviction uh, disenfranchise you until the General Assembly sets up a system to restore your rights, which they did. Um, that's in, also enshrined in North Carolina law for a reason. Uh, folks that commit these kind of felonies, uh, crimes, have shown that they don't respect the laws and the rules and the norms of society. And so they are excluded from a lot of things. There's, you know, you, there's limits on travel while you're on probation or parole. There's limits on other things you can do. And part of that total package is uh, taking away the right to vote until you've shown that you're ready to become a full member of society again. Yeah. Andy Jackson, the director of the Civitas Center for Public Integrity at the John Locke Foundation. Read his work at johnlock.org. Andy, thanks for your time. As always, I appreciate it. All right. Appreciate you. All right, man. Thank you. Talk 1110-993-WBT. So, um, pulling it up now, let's see here. I've been informed by my producer that Charlie Watts, 
The drummer for the Rolling Stones passed away at age 80. Um, he had apparently he died in a London hospital today. He passed away peacefully in a London hospital earlier today, surrounded by his family. Charlie was a cherished husband, father. Whoop. Yeah, I'll say. And um, and uh, grandfather and also a member of the Rolling Stones, one of the greatest drummers of his generation. Apparently, he had already uh, pulled out of the tour that was uh, being planned, pulled out of that tour a couple weeks ago, according to the Daily Beast, as I am seeing. He had undergone an unspecified medical procedure. The band said earlier this month when Watts had to forego the U.S. stadium tour. Um, yeah, so that's that's all the information I've got right now. All right, um, we'll give you more if, uh, if, if and when it becomes available, but Charlie Watts dead at the age of 80. North Carolina has apparently two judges in Wake County that have decided they're going to rewrite our Constitution, approved in 1972, so it's not even like a really old Constitution. Um, And I say that because I was born in 1973, and I'm not really old. So that's the the top line on this story out of Wake County that uh, some leftists sued, and lo and behold, some leftist lawyers wearing black robes agreed with them that... If you're on probation, that's a different kind of sentence than being in jail for the felony that you were convicted of. And so we're just going to rewrite that part of the Constitution. You're welcome. Rich, welcome to the show. Hello, Rich. How are you? Hey, Pete. Good afternoon. I want you to know I enjoy your show. I like your attitude and your bumper music. You rock my world with the Charlie (laughs) Watts news. Uh, I'm sorry. This could be another day that the music died. Yeah. But uh, anyway, I've been through the system before uh, in another state, Georgia, actually. And I believe that after you complete all your time, your probation and your parole, there's a form that you can fill out to get your rights reinstated anyway. Mm-hmm. So I don't know that we really need a, uh, somebody to pass a rule to do it automatically, but um, people that want to get there to vote. Now, I'm not sure about gun our privileges, you know, depending on the crime. And, those are not, uh, yeah, in North Carolina, those are not easily restored at all. Right, but uh, but in uh, as far as I know, uh, it was in Georgia. So I was told at the end of my time when I did all my probation and everything was done, if I filled out my form, I would be able to get back some of my rights. Mm-hmm. Um, probably not the gun right, but yeah, I just want to interject that and let you know that I really like the uh, attitude and the perspective uh, you bring into the afternoon show. Well, here. Thank I you, really Rich. Appreciate I appreciate that. that, man. And I will tell you that had uh, you gotten out in North Carolina, your rights would have been restored automatically because the legislature has already done that. So you don't even have to fill out a form. The rights that you had prior get restored automatically, except for the gun ownership rights. As, uh, right. Yeah. So we don't even need the hoopla. I mean, it's all it's all propaganda. It's all. It's all BS, brother. I got you. Rich, thanks for the call, sir. Yeah, man, I appreciate it. Um, And thanks for the kind words. Um, Yeah, I don't uh, don't see this as anything other than the opening of the door in order to get felon voting. And even because, I mean, so let's kind of walk through it, right? Let's walk through this. You'll hear me talk about this. The limiting principle. 
what is the limiting principle on this ruling? And the one thing that I know about lawyers, and I know I I beat up on lawyers, you know, pretty regularly. <laughs> but uh, look, I mean, they're just so beat upable. They really are just as a group, you know, and it's like I'm talking about like the group of lawyers, just lawyering in general, right? Lawyers in general, like the, the class, just like media. And I am media. I am a member of the media and our popularity rankings are as low as as lawyers. So I, I feel like like we're all in the same bottom of the boat here. Right. So. Let's look at the limiting principle. What's going to stop lawyers from conjuring up interpretations that then become law simply because of their attire, right? Because they're wearing the black robe and they may have been appointed to that position because somebody died or somebody retired or became another judge at a different level or something. And an opening uh, became available and somebody like the governor appointed them to this bench and put them there. That's how that happens, right? It's a lawyer. Here you go. You're on the bench. Here's a robe. Yay me. Now I get to do stuff that I couldn't do as a lawyer. I get to affect change. Right? This is judicial activism. And I'm sorry if I'm kind of approaching this from a kind of flippant, dismissive uh, posture. But really, like, honestly, so many of you guys have earned this. So I don't feel bad about it. So you've got the lawyers now reimagining what this constitutional provision says. And they're saying that, well, and we don't even really we don't even have their opinion yet. As you heard from Andy Jackson, we don't even know why they say what they're saying. They just said, you can't stop people who have served their incarceral sentence, the, 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 the jail portion, they're out. And now you can't, you can't with, uh, prevent them from voting because even though their sentence is still ongoing, because probation or parole, those are, those are parts of the sentence. They're not located geographically in a prison cell. Okay, well then, what would stop somebody from, uh, if they're just being held on a misdemeanor? Are they allowed to vote while in prison? Are you allowed to vote uh, if you're being held in prison at a local level? Can you vote in the local election against your sheriff? Or how about this? Can I now go in and organize a voter registration drive at the jail as the late Valerie Woodard, county commissioner, uh, and uh, her pal Nick Mackey did to get the, to try to get to be the sheriff. Remember, like that was what they wanted to do. The jail drives. Do you think they vote for the sheriff that's running the jail? Like, what's the limiting principle here? I don't see one. The 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 excuse or the the justification for what we just saw in this case would carry through to all other forms of punishment. All right, news is next on News Talk eleven ten and ninety nine three WBT. Talk 1110 WBT. I think I I think I've settled on the name. I think we're just going to go with the Pete Callender show. What do you think? I think I like it. It's good. It's simple. Yeah. It's direct to the point. Difficult to spell. I like <laughs> it. <laughs> sometimes we can go with a C. Sometimes we can go with a K. Oh no. no. 
I did have uh, an old general manager tell me one time after they had conducted focus groups that uh, he said, uh, not specifically on me, but it was on, well, it was on here. It was here at WBT. This was years ago. And they used to bring people in and do focus groups and such. And uh, he came up to me in the hallway the next day and he was like, look, you're just going to have to change your name. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Nobody knows how to spell it. That upfront about it? Yeah. I was like, yeah, not happening. Um, although looking back on it, if I had to do it over again, I probably would have gone with an alternate name, a fake name, because it does allow, I mean, it, it, it creates a lot of problems if I'm trying to be a normal person in society. Yeah. Do, do people come up to you in the grocery store and go, Oh my God, Pete Callender. So here's a, I will tell you this, this is a true story. Old friend of mine, Jerry Hancock. Not the host on WBT, but the host of uh, a program. He was an advertising guy, I think, and uh, he had his own consulting firm. But he was host of Final Edition, which was on WTVI, local uh, public television station. And he would do a reporter roundtable for years. He was the host, and I, would, I was a regular on, the, on the, the recordings on the program. And... He said to me, he told this story of how one day he is in the Harris Teeter, he's grocery shopping, and a woman comes up to him and says, aren't you Jerry Hancock from Final Edition? And he's like, why, yes, I am. And so he, he, says, admit, so he, so he admitted to it. Yes. And she says, you do your own grocery shopping? <laughs> Not, <laughs> like there's two levels there. Like, first off. Like that, you would see him at the grocery store. That would like that. That's just kind of an odd thing because you know a famous person. Maybe they just need to run in real quick. By the way, Pete, something. I'm not doing your grocery shopping for you. No, I, I don't would, think you want me doing your grocery. I shopping. would never. I have people for that already. <laughs> I would. Never. But no, like I. But yeah. So the second level of that is that the assumption that he would not that like you realize this is a public, local public television station. Right? <laughs> this is not. There's not like a black limo outside. There's not. <laughs> yeah, he loved to tell that story. Um, where was I? Oh, yes, I just determined the name of the program. The Pete Callender Show. Welcome. Thanks so much for listening. I appreciate it making me a part of your day. People who have finished their felony prison sentences but are still on probation or parole should be able to vote in North Carolina, according to a panel of state judges. A panel of state judges. That makes it sound like there's a whole bunch of them, doesn't it? There was two, two, two Superior Court judges out of Wake County. Two of them. That's it. North Carolina's practice has been to restore voting rights when people finish their sentences. But they had to finish all of it, including probation and, here's the key, payoff fines. This was the doorway. This was the opening. Because according to WRAL's story by not just Travis Fain, but also Laura Leslie and Luke Notstein and Matthew Burns took four of them to write the story, which was largely reported already by the Carolina public press. But I digress. A number of advocacy groups, we don't know how many, but a number sued ahead of last year's elections when everybody was so crazy, you know, when people were worried that Biden wouldn't win. So they had to till the field with all of these lawsuits. Yeah. They filed all of these lawsuits. I also think, by the way, that a lot of these lawsuits 
got filed because of COVID. I do believe that. I think I think there were a lot of people that filed lawsuits because they knew they wouldn't actually have to go travel to these courtrooms. It was all done on Zoom, right? It was all remote. And so that made it somewhat easier, if not really annoying to watch, because I've watched a lot of court proceedings over the last year, um, these these uh, election-related lawsuits and such, and they're really annoying uh, to watch. Uh, anyway, you're not muted. You're not muted. Unmute yourself. Mute yourself. Unmute yourself. Ugh. Anyway, a number of advocacy groups sued ahead of last year's elections, and the court said people who are still under court supervision solely because of outstanding fines or fees should be allowed to vote. This is what these same judges said last year. Okay? So this announcement of a ruling, which we haven't seen the actual ruling yet, this announcement builds on that prior ruling. They said, if you just have outstanding fines or fees, you should be allowed to vote, even though that's also part of your sentence. You see where this is going, though, right? You see where it's going because it's a financial component. Among other things, the plaintiffs in the case have argued that the state's current practice disproportionately affects potential minority voters. In their complaint, the groups said that, uh, yeah, the, the group said that black people represent about 20% of North Carolina's voting population, but 40% of the people disenfranchised following release from prison. Monday's decision extends that now to anybody on probation or parole. This, according to a guy by the name of Stanton Jones, an attorney for the plaintiffs and an absolute idiot and insane person on Twitter. I can tell you that because I have interacted with him. Uh, I think he has since blocked me. (laughs) This was several years ago. Like I interacted with him and oh my gosh, like, like standard bearer flag waving moon bat brigade leader kind of crazy. And then I found out he's a lawyer and I was like, oh my God. And then I found out he's a lawyer representing these organizations, these activist groups in these lawsuits. And then I was like, oh, for the love of me, how does he win a case? He's insane. That doesn't mean he's not good at lawyering. In fact, there might be some some overlap on the Venn diagrams there. But um, this essentially restores people's rights to vote as soon as they finish their time behind bars. Carolina Public Press had reported last week that the decision could impact more than 55,000 people, 55,000 people. And that is, I mean, 55,000 people, that's like five times the number of votes that Roy Cooper beat Pat McCrory by. Like that's, so it's, it's, it's very, it's very close. Yeah, it's very close. Uh, I'm not sure what happened there with the rim shot, but it was late. I appreciate that. Attorney Daryl Atkinson, who represented the plaintiffs, called the ruling the biggest expansion of voting rights in North Carolina in decades. No one from the state's defense could come up with a single good reason to keep the law blocking felons from voting once they were released from prison. That's, by the way, that, that's the journalists writing that line for you, in case you were interested. No one from the state's defense could come up with a single good reason to keep the law blocking felons from voting once they were released from prison. I, I, I have an idea. 
um, that it's the law and you did not change the law in the way that is prescribed in the law. This is the Constitution of the state you're talking about, and if you would like to amend the Constitution, there are ways to do that. What you just did is not one of the ways that you do that. I mean, I guess you can just go sue crazy and get a lawyer with a robe to rule in your favor and then rewrite the Constitution however you would like. I guess that is one way to do it, but you do also destroy the bonds of the society among its citizens, right? The consent of the governed. You're 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 wasting away. You're whizzing it away. Seriously, like, do you think that my opinions, like what, what I'm, how I'm describing judges, like, do you think this comes from a position of trust and a belief in the credibility of the court system? This, when this is what I see, how they behave, why would I have any trust or faith in that? Why would anybody? So yeah, I mean, please proceed, keep doing it. I'm sure nothing bad will happen when you rip down the uh, the legal system, the thing that actually like creates our society and makes us a peaceful harmonious society please by all means keep chipping away at it news talk 11 10 wbt the pete calendar show i'm pete calendar that's how i got the gig 704 1110 and uh, 1-800-WBT-1110. So attorney Daryl Atkinson, who represents the plaintiffs in this case, said, quote, there are 56,000 North Carolinians who are living in our communities, paying taxes every day, dropping kids off at school, but are serving community supervision for felony convictions. This case was about making sure those folks are included in that we, the people. Uh, yeah. Um, their sentence, though, was parole, or probation. And so they're still serving that sentence. And so if you're still serving the sentence, then it seems to me like you don't get to vote because that's what the Constitution says. The State Board of Elections put out its own statement that its attorneys are reviewing the decision and would consider the written ruling when released. It said that for now, local boards of elections uh, must immediately begin to permit people covered in the ruling in order to register to vote. Joining me now is State Senator Warren Daniel uh, out of Burke County. He is uh, a Republican. He is also, I want to make sure I got this right, because you're the, was it the co-chair? I forget. Redistricting and Elections Committee? I think I got that right. Senator Daniel, how are you? Great, Pete. Hope you are. I am, and I appreciate you joining me today. Uh, As I understand it, you are... You're off doing some more fun things than, uh, <laughs> than legislative actions. But uh, I, I wanted to kind of uh, get your reaction to this ruling from uh, these, again, as I understand it, just two judges out of Wake County. Um, two judges, they apparently now get to overturn the North Carolina Constitution. Am I reading this correctly? The continuing um, trend across our judicial system you know i was a judiciary committee chair for 10 years and this type of ruling is not new except that this one seems to be more brave and uh, than others have been in the past and our state constitution in article 6 prohibits all felons um period from being able to vote um except as prescribed by law by the general assembly and uh, so you know that's sort of 
uh, been in place since Senator, your uh, cell phone is is breaking up pretty badly. Um, I can catch you uh, like about every other uh, about every other half sentence. <laughs> so I don't know if you're if you're able to if you're able to hear me fine, uh, or if I'm breaking up on your end. But if you're able to kind of get to a, a spot that might be better cell service wherever you might be, or I don't know if you're driving, maybe get to a better cell. Um, but I did want to ask you about the the roots of this. You mentioned, I think I heard you mention there about the Constitution. This is, and it goes back like 1972, 1973 timeframe. Um, do you know the rationale at that time for this provision? No, we can't. Um, oh. But I know that the, the law itself was passed in 1973, allowing felons to register to vote as long as they had completed their sentence, their probation, and their parole. Uh, my understanding is that statute was championed by a couple of uh, minority Democrats, including Representative Misha uh, from Durham, and it's been in effect for almost 50 years since then. Hmm. Really? So it wasn't the it wasn't the the vote suppressing Republicans that that did that. That's that's really interesting. That's uh... <laughs> well, Pete. I think you know. Just remember that almost everything that's been oppressive in our state laws was enacted by Democrats. And we could, you know, go into a long list of those. But Republicans for the last decade have been, you know, reversing and correcting some of those things and in some cases making reparations for people like eugenics victims um, who were victims of the Democrats. Right. And, yeah, it's one of the things that a lot of people who have just moved into North Carolina, and, you know, we both know there are a lot of them, uh, they come here and they think that, Oh, the Republicans are in the General Assembly, and so this is a Republican-run state, and so all of these terrible things, this all obviously is due to the Republicans, when it's like, well, no, Republicans have only been in power for the last 11 years, basically, and the previous century and a half was Democrats. And so uh, like the, all of these building blocks, all these laws, they were all put on the books by Democrats. Um I am kind of curious also about this uh, this one other component about the attorney general that uh, the General Assembly has uh, has fired him, essentially, as I understand it, right, that the General Assembly is going to go get another lawyer to represent their interests in this case. And uh, I'm 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 kind of worried that in doing so, like there, it sounds beneficial to get Josh Stein out of the case, because I think you guys are going to be better represented by a different attorney. But on the other hand, does this open the door for another collusive Settlement of some kind. Well, you know, I think we can't rule that out with this attorney general. Um, but, you know, the necessity of hiring outside counsel is that, that the um, timeliness of this appeal needs to be immediate because of the fact that if this ruling is going to affect the 2021 election unless we can get a stay of that ruling. And so the attorney general refused to move uh, on an appeal uh, under the end veil of no written order had been received. And so we decided that if, if we're going to take any action in this case, we're going to have to um, hire outside counsel. Is this a normal thing for judges to do, to say they're going to issue a ruling and this is how we're going to rule, but 
we don't have it written up so everybody can read it yet? Is that normal? I think sometimes it's it's normal for judges in just the run-of-the-mill case to announce to the parties what their general ruling is going to be and then ask the parties to prepare an order that reflects that. Um, you know, I think the way the thing that's unique about this is that the case, case sat dormant for something like a year, and then all of a sudden uh, the parties were notified a, a couple weeks ago or, you know, that um, the trial was going to be held. We only had uh, about a week to prepare for the trial, and then, um, you know, of course, then this. I think it's unusual in a case like this when you have significant constitutional implications that are based on probably half a century of existing legal precedent. And and one point to uh, a couple of points that you remember a couple of years, uh, months ago when we were discussing the case when the Department of Health and Safety and the Department of Adult Correction agreed through a court settlement to allow thousands of inmates who should be in prison to be released from prison at the News Talk 1110-993-WBT. We were talking with State Senator Warren Daniel, and uh, unfortunately he was on a very bad cell, or a, a cell, well, a, in a bad cell. Is that how you say it? In a bad cell? But, uh, he was connected to a bad cell tower or something. We'll see if it's any better. He's called back. Senator Daniel, can you hear me okay? And I guess, can I hear you? I can hear you fine, please. All right. You can hear me. All right, so you were talking, uh, it still sounds kind of uh, a little underwaterish, but uh, let's just, uh, we'll try to get through this, which is the, because I, I think you were about to talk about some example uh, when, when we lost you, um, an example of what you mentioned, I think DHS or something? Well, I think just as an example of how these court cases build upon themselves, you remember a couple months ago, the Department of Public Safety entered into a settlement where they allowed thousands of inmates who weren't scheduled for release to be released early due to COVID. Right. And then you stack on top of it a case like this when they say, well, now every inmate who is not behind prison walls has the right to, um, to have their voting rights restored, then you can see how that can manipulate the law that was passed in 1973. Surely that you're not suggesting that there would be some level of coordination among these different tactics towards an overall strategy. I think certainly on behalf of the plaintiffs, that could be <laughs> uh, something that's, you know, in their back pocket. But I don't have any evidence. Of right. That. But, you know, these, these liberal groups, you know, they all do things in coordination, whether it's to try to strike down um, election reforms or voter ID laws. You know, it's all about an end goal. No, yeah, I agree. And that what what it requires oftentimes is for people to ignore what is plainly in front of our faces, which, as you just mentioned, because I was going to mention this also, which was uh, when you start releasing people from the jails due to the COVID pandemic, and now you're saying that anybody who's released from jail can vote. It's like, well, yeah, now obviously you can just camp out outside the jail and just do a voter registration drive. 
when everybody gets released. I think another interesting point is, I, you know, I had my staff do a little research on this issue. And as far as we can tell, in the last 20 years in the General Assembly, only one bill has been filed that would have essentially done what the court did, which was a, a, a felon's voting rights restoration bill filed by then-Senator Erica Smith um, two or three years ago. So it's not been a burning issue on behalf of the legislature, but apparently, you know, the, the court feels like that uh, they just want to legislate in this area. Right. It, it, to your point, it's not been an issue among Democratic lawmakers. W- even when they had the majority, they, they didn't feel the need to push this. In fact, they, they wrote the law for this to right. be the case. Yeah. And Erica Smith, now the candidate for U.S. Senate on the Democratic side, seen as more uh, the more progressive of the three Democratic candidates. So she's the only one that ran this kind of a bill. Nobody else on the Democratic side has been arguing for this. I've never heard this as any kind of a, I've never heard of a big push for this either. And I've been covering state politics for almost 20 years too. So like, I don't, I don't know where this, this came from, except as you mentioned, you got a bunch of people now being released um, for due to COVID. And maybe this was an opportunity uh, for, for them to get some extra voters uh, on the rolls. I, I don't know. I don't want to ascribe motive, but I'm an Occam's razor kind of guy. <laughs> so when I see what is obviously some things happening that line up, it looks to be uh, more likely than not. So um, so where uh, where does this now go from here? You guys, uh, the General Assembly has uh, has fired Josh Stein. You're going to get a different attorney. So I assume, though, that the clock is running on this for an appeal. We're going to ask for a, a temporary stay of the ruling pending appeal, and it will go to the Court of Appeals, and we will just, uh, see if that court will agree with us. And is are you aware of the any deadlines that you have to hit? Because like isn't I mean isn't the board of elections are they doing ballots or something that you got to get in under a wire? Apparently, there was some election deadline that that lined up with the timing of the court's decision. Um, we're still in the process of trying to figure that out. Ah. But, um, yes, it's it's possible if the court doesn't enter a stay very quickly that, you know, at least for the 2021 election, it, it may be that these 55,000 felons will be deemed eligible to vote. All because two judges in Wake County wrote it. Interesting. Uh, Senator Daniel, thanks so much for calling back. I do appreciate it. Better and a much better cell reception this time around. <laughs> so, thanks, Pete. All right, thank Have you, sir. Day. Yes, sir. You too. Um, so, if you're trying to map out the area where you are, is where you can get best cell re- uh, cell reception. That was it. <laughs> that spot. Don't move Ooh. from right there. That's right. <laughs> um, do 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 do. Uh, well, hello, Chris. I got an email from Chris. Uh, Last night at roughly 9.40 on WBT, Mark Levin called Nancy Pelosi a domestic enemy twice. Um, I just heard y'all play the Rolling Stones. Early this morning, Charlie Watts, drummer and founding member, died in a hospital. Was that why the bumper was played? Well, Ryan, was that why the bumper music was played? Yes, I I selected that for a reason. Yes. So there you go. There's the answer to your question. That's what I do here. I find answers to questions, or I make them up. And lastly, Chris says, congratulations on the new show and time slot. Um, It must have been a real rush when you got the news. 
Hey-oh. Okay. That was, why did that play half a rim shot? That rim shot was not in a rush. There you go. Good to hear you on BT again. Uh, thank you, Chris. I appreciate it. Uh, again, as always, leave the comedy to the professionals. Um, <laughs> because the rim shot can only do so much. All right, again, thanks to State Senator Warren Daniel from Burke County joining us while he was off doing other things, and I appreciate him carving out some time just to go over that with us. Um, I was not aware that the the uh, that this this idea has not even been run through a General Assembly bill process, except once in 20 years. <laughs> That's how high a priority it was. Um Earlier today, I'm not going to go into it. Uh, I've got the audio. I'll uh, when I after I get off the air, I'll go and cut it up because the press conference occurred at 10 a.m. It lasted almost an hour. I did roll uh, uh, a recording on it or roll tape on it, and uh, it is the it was the press conference about the critical race theory bill that now was uh, proposed in the Senate Education Committee at 11 a.m. today. So we'll do that tomorrow, get into the details of that bill, and uh, we'll play some of the audio from that event tomorrow. Um, I will point out, because this is still the argument that we're, that I'm seeing, I tell you, the left is, the progressive left is so dishonest, so dishonest on this topic. And I understand why, because it's all in service to the movement. I, I get that, right? This the neo-Marxist postmodernist movement, I understand that. And even if you don't and you're of the progressive left and you don't understand that, don't worry, I do. And people who are the most vocal critics of critical race theory, they do. That's why this is so important. But it follows a, uh, their, their line of attack, or I should say defense, let's say that. Their line of defense on critical race theory, because critical race theory and all of that, uh, the ancillary-related uh, philosophies that, you know, what do they call the critical legal studies, critical thinking, or, or not critical, critical studies, um, and also, um, what's the, it's CRT, but it's culturally responsive teaching. Yeah, it's the same acronym, but they changed the words. <laughs> so, like, a lot of this stuff, um, a lot of this stuff, and equity, and, like, the rebranding, the redefinition of words, it's all in service to... This, you know, this one sort of overarching philosophy, and it is always of the same bent, which is neo-Marxism, it's postmodernism. Anyway, um, they always approach this CRT debate the same sort of way they approach the voting, uh, right or not rights, but uh, voter ID debate. And, and once you hear this, you're, you're never going to be able to unhear it. First, it was, it doesn't exist. That was the first thing that they tried telling us, both with vote fraud and with um, uh, critical race theory in schools. And that's where we are, like, when you hear this debate, and this is usually the first line of attack, is, well, yes, they'll say it doesn't exist. And then when you say it does exist, then they'll say, well, give me some examples. You can't cite any examples. And the problem has been is that there hasn't been, like, a repository of all of these Examples. Well, now there is. Now there there have been, like, campus reform has done one. Legal insurrection has done one. That's what the lieutenant governor is doing in North Carolina. He's building a repository of, of examples of how this is infecting 
the classroom. And it's not just the classroom, by the way. There was a big write-up by Christopher Rufo about Bank of America. They've been running their employees through, like, some ridiculous, like, 28-day uh, struggle session. It's, like, amazing. I, I've seen some of the documents. It's, like, out of control. Anyway, the um, it's not just in the classrooms. But so when you when you give them these examples, then they say, well, it's not a lot. Eh, it's not a lot. It's not a lot. Don't worry. It's not a lot. Look, it's only a couple of cases. There's one case. They did the same thing with voter ID when they say there's no such thing as vote fraud. And then you give them some examples of fraud. And they're like, oh, that's not a lot. It's okay. One case. Big deal. Then what do they say? It's not like it affected the outcome, right? So it hasn't made an impact. It's not like a, not like a widespread. It's not really going on all over the place. It's just a couple of examples. And now we're at the point where it's like it's more than a couple examples. This stuff has so infected so much of higher academia, which is where, by the way, the teachers come from, in case anybody's unaware, like, well, that might be happening in the colleges, but not in the K-12 setting. Yeah, but all the teachers come out of academia. So if it's infected academia, then why wouldn't it be in the K-12 schools? See, this is the thing. It's not like someone's going to get up there and like, this is... The, uh, the, you know, the, the critical race theory, this is the Harvard Law School. The, the, here's, the, here's the actual uh, lesson plan from the 1980s. Like, no, they're not doing that. They're not running you through the paces of the actual critical race theory lessons because it's a pedagogy. It's a method of teaching, you see. It's been expanded. That work has been expanded upon since Derek Bell, right, since the original crafting of the Critical race theory it has been expanded upon. So anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm way down the rabbit hole on this, but I'm just saying that we will get to this. It'll be tomorrow. I'll have the audio. That's the plan, at least. Plan subject to change. Um, David Lewis, former state lawmaker. This does have a connection to the previous topic of the, uh, fe- of the felons voting in that David Lewis is going to serve two years of supervised release and has been ordered to pay a $1,000 fine, according to the U.S. Attorney's Office. Carolina Journal reporting that the Harnett County Republican served in the House, and he's not going to do any prison time. He resigned in August of 2020, and he allegedly diverted $65,000 out of his campaign bank account into his business in 2018. And he used an account to do this that he had labeled NCGOP Inc. Incorporated. <laughs> NCGOP. He controlled the NCGOP account, which had no actual connection to the state Republican Party. He documented the money transfer as a contribution to the Republican Party. And he later transferred $65,000 to the Republican Party from a personal bank account. And then he closed the GOP Inc. account. So he's basically moving this money around. Now, the Lewis defense team said that uh, his wrongdoing was an act of desperation rather than greed. The money was used by Lewis Farms to pay the rent on his home. Here's what, um, let's see, this is the prosecution said his conduct was both serious and willful. Neither the defendant's campaign nor any financial institution, though, suffered any loss. He admitted his wrongdoing before an indictment was presented to a grand jury, and he accepted responsibility for his actions by pleading guilty and resigning his house seat. They recommended probation because of all of that behavior, that nobody was harmed, 
right? There was no financial institutions. He was basically trying to, his lawyers say that he was trying to save his family farm, his fourth generation farm um, that had been damaged from two hurricanes. He was then also diagnosed with thyroid cancer. At the same time, he was having his legislative responsibilities expand. He was, and remember, he was like the guy in charge of redistricting. So he was constantly caught up in the litigation of all of that stuff. So, quote, to save the family farm from these confluent spirals, he made the single worst decision of his life. He temporarily diverted campaign funds to personal use before repatriating them to their normal end. He has been trying to save the family farm since resigning from the legislature. And his lawyers say that his thyroid issues uh, continue uh, to this day. So David Lewis, under terms now of uh, these two judges in Wake County, their ruling that's not a ruling, their opinion that's about to be publicized. We'll find out when at some point um, he's allowed to vote. He's allowed to vote because he's got probation. I don't think he should be allowed to vote. I think, no, I don't think he should be allowed to vote while he's serving out that probation, especially for the abuse of the public trust, right? Republican lawmaker, by the way, in case I didn't mention that. And in case I didn't mention this, we've got news coming up from the WBT News Center and Mark Garrison on News Talk 1110 and 99.3 WBT. Hour number three underway. This is it. We're already in it. News Talk 1110-993-WBT. Pete Callender here. 704-570-1110 and 1-800-WBT-1110. Uh, the pistol purchase permit system in North Carolina, it's racist. And um, actually, it was Jim Crow era law, which is weird because the people who are always so hyper vigilant to let us know where all the Jim Crow laws are and uh, Jim Crow inspired laws and Jim Crow era laws, like all of the, all of that. For some reason, they're totally on board with this Jim Crow era law. And it actually is a law that was put on the books to keep black people from owning firearms. So lest they be able to defend themselves from the Klan. Seriously, like that's, what the pistol purchase permit system was about. And nowadays, Democrats prefer to use it uh, to keep guns out of the hands of, well, if you look at the the statistics, uh, oh, it actually still is black people. Isn't that amazing? It still is. (laughs) Some things never change, you Democrats, you crazy old Democrats. So I do find this interesting, and the only reason it comes up again is because the uh, the super smart set over at WRAL's parent company, Capital Broadcasting Company, decided to do an op or sorry, an editorial. Uh, WRAL, I mentioned this the other day. They are um, they are the Raleigh-based television station. This was Jesse Helms's TV station, and I suspect they're trying to uh, sort of excise that history uh, somewhat, and so that's why they went and hired a fellow by the name of Seth Efron. And uh, I think he's been in a couple movies as well. Isn't that, yeah, like 30 going on. Anyway, he, um, 
he used to be the comms guy. He was a reporter first, of course, and then he became a comms guy for uh, former governors Bev Perdue and Mike Easley, both Democrats. He then uh, got hired on to be the mouthpiece for Jim Goodman, who is the owner of Capital Broadcasting Company that owns WRAL. And so they keep cranking out these editorial pieces because for some reason, we all need to know what the owner of WRAL thinks about stuff. Oh, and and newsflash, he's a liberal Democrat. So can you guess what kind of guy he hired? Well, obviously he hired a Democrat. So can you guess what kind of opinions are being pushed out of the WRAL editorial department? Which we are to believe, they told us that, The news coverage is never informed or influenced or biased at all by the editorial positions or the people that take them. Although there was that email that went around a couple of months back that showed there was discussion among the editorial guy and the news department. But that's just one example. That's it's not widespread. It's like vote fraud. So, uh, Mr. Efron writes a big piece about the pistol purchase permit repeal that is proposed in the General Assembly. It's working its way through the legislature. And this would just be terrible because Republicans obviously want more people to die. And so that's why they're trying to repeal the pistol purchase permit. So he's actually defending a Jim Crow era law. Noted Democrat on behalf of noted Democrat defending Democrat laws that keep guns out of the hands of predominantly black people. And there is, I have the data to support this. I'm not just throwing this out there. I'm not just making wild accusations like the left does on critical race theory. State Senator Chuck Edwards, a Henderson County Republican, that's uh, Henderson County right there next to Buncombe County and on the state border with South Carolina. Uh, Chuck Edwards, uh, he actually is the senator who, who won the seat after Tom Apodaca, who was a longtime shot caller out there out west. Uh, So Chuck Edwards is now uh, in that seat. And he says it has been brought to my attention. Some sheriffs were slowing the issuance of the permits simply because they do not want to allow citizens their Second Amendment rights. Edwards says that the National Instant Criminal Background Check System is adequate. And what Mr. Efron says is that this is idle chatter and hearsay it's not reality or facts or is it or is it i asked this question because the north state journal has a story about a lawsuit that has been filed against our very own sheriff here in mecklenburg county over the delay of issuing pistol permits So for folks who don't know how this system works, which I understand basically describes like all Democrats and every gun control activist, I understand it. So the way the system works here is that if you want to purchase a firearm, not a rifle, but a handgun, you want, you got to go to the sheriff's office. You got to give them $5, five whole dollars. And you have to ask, please, sir, can I purchase a firearm? And you have to do it like that. It's in the law. I don't make the law. It's in the law. No, I'm kidding about that part. But you go there, you give them $5, and you get a shiny permit. If the sheriff thinks that you are of good moral character and you are a a good citizen in good standing, it's completely nebulous. 
right? Now the sheriff and various sheriffs can uh, can do whatever they want. They'll, you know, they could run a background check on you, or maybe they say, "Oh, you know what? I know Pete. He's okay by me. Yeah, he's in my neighborhood. He would never hurt a fly. He's totally fine. Whatever." Some sheriffs have a more streamlined process or something where they take that out of your hands, but some do not. And so the, the sheriff gets to make this call, whether you get this piece of paper that says you can purchase one whole firearm with this piece of paper. And if, by the way, if you have a concealed carry permit, you don't need those papers anymore. You've got the permit, which is way more rigorous to go through. It's a much more rigorous process to go through and uh, takes a lot longer. The sheriff's offices have been accused of slow rolling those as well. Um, and uh, then you you just use your concealed carry card, and that is your permit to purchase the handguns. Right. So this is so this system is only for handguns too. Only for handguns. If you want a rifle, you don't need the pistol purchase permit. Otherwise, it wouldn't be called a pistol purchase permit, right? For obvious reasons. So now there is a lawsuit though that has been filed against Mecklenburg County. Um, this is from A.P. Dillon, our friend A.P. Dillon at the North State Journal. Multiple firearms advocacy groups, along with several individuals, have filed a lawsuit against Mecklenburg County Sheriff Gary McFadden for his refusal to issue pistol purchase permits and concealed handgun permits in a timely manner as is required by North Carolina state law. There's one group called Grassroots North Carolina and another group called Gun Owners of America, and they're the main plaintiffs in this case. They're asking for a preliminary injunction against McFadden. The complaint lists three individual plaintiffs who are residents of Mecklenburg County. There is uh, Rights Watch International, located in North Carolina, and Gun Owners Foundation, located in Virginia. They are also listed in the suit. The days of sheriffs obstructing North Carolina citizens from exercising their right to keep and bear arms under the United States Constitution and North Carolina Constitution are over, said Gun, or sorry, uh, Grassroots North Carolina President Paul Vallone. The suit alleges that McFadden's office was taking up to six months to schedule appointments for permits and up to an additional six months to process permit applications. By the way, here's just a piece of advice. If you're going to go out and get one permit, you're going to spend the $5 and get a permit, you're, you might as well... Bring 25 and get five. Just do it at once. Do it all at once. Get a whole bunch extra. Not that I'm saying you need to go out and use them, but if you do and something happens and you're like, oh, you know, somebody's looking to sell a firearm uh, at a gun show and you're like, oh, I want to buy that. And you don't have to now go back and get another permit. You'll have a couple. You'll have, you know, four left over. So you can then just present that at the time. And by the way, um, for folks who are listening, for Democrats and gun control activists who don't know anything about guns, um, when you buy guns at gun shows, like virtually everybody at the gun show is an FFL, and they're going to require you to present some sort of uh, proof that you can buy the gun. Right? They're going to run you through nicks. They're going to do that stuff because they don't want to lose their license. A year. A year. 
It takes a year to get a pistol purchase permit in Mecklenburg County. That is insane. No wonder they're getting sued. <laughs> the sheriff's office being sued by a, a host of gun rights organizations. The sheriff, Gary McFadden, takes the, his office takes up to six months to schedule appointments for permits and up to another six months to process them. A year. Like, hmm, I think I might want to purchase a gun in 2022. I should start the paperwork now. Really? No, this, oh, oh, I know, I know. It's all because of COVID. COVID's the reason why nobody can do anything anymore, right? That's the reason why. Give me a break. COVID is an excuse. COVID is a cover. COVID is just the justification that people use to do the thing that they wanted to do anyway. Man, I would really love to not work for two years. Oh, guess what? I can do that now because of COVID. Man, I would really like to not pay my rent. Oh, guess what? I can do that now because of COVID. I'd really like to not shower. Well, I haven't been doing that actually regularly for a long time. That's That has been going on for a while. All right. But um, <laughs> the... The delay in pistol purchase permitting, I will give you a little bit of COVID impact. Just a little bit. I suspect that you guys are totally fine with delaying people's ability to purchase firearms. I think that's, and you may believe that you know, you're doing the Lord's work in trying to slow roll all of this stuff. That you're, what you're doing is benefiting the people. You're doing it for the right reasons. The best of intentions. House Bill 398 will now take this job, this authority, from the sheriffs. And I'm okay with that. I really am. I'm okay with that. We have the Nix system. I'm okay with taking it away from sheriffs who use it to prevent people that they don't like from getting firearms. They, they can do that, right? They can do that. The current version of the bill that is now being uh, run through the legislature repeals the need to get a pistol purchase permit or concealed handgun permit entirely, and the Sheriff's Association, which had previously opposed the changes, is now on board. Quote, we are encouraged to see that the North Carolina Sheriff's Association now agrees to bring gun purchases in North Carolina into the 21st century by eliminating our Jim Crow era permit system and requiring background checks at point of sale. That's, that system already exists, folks. It already exists at the point of sale. That was, a, by the way, a comment from Paul Valone from Grassroots North Carolina. Um, given that a recent UNC School of Law paper found that in Wake County, black applicants are being denied permits three times more often than whites, it is clear that racism in issuing permits continues to this day. Consequently, we are calling upon Democrat legislators to join in repealing this racist law. What Valone is doing, and I don't know his intentions. I've not spoken with him about I, the last time I spoke with him, I think was an interview I did with him, I don't know, five years ago or so. But what he's citing here, this is what the left cites whenever they try to allege racism. This is at the core of actually Critical race theory, disparate outcomes, disparate outcomes among racial groups is now viewed as de facto proof of systemic racism. 
So if you have in this paper from the UNC School of Law would indicate it to be so that up in Wake County, they're denying permits from uh, requests from black applicants at three times the rate that they are denying the applicants who are white. That is de facto proof that it is a racist system. That's the left standard. The right didn't come up with this standard, this disparate income. This is the standard of the left, of the progressives. And I have been telling the left this on a great many things for many, many years. Y'all are really not going to like it when we start all adopting your standards because they're garbage standards. They're garbage. Because, so what am I to believe? That the Wake County Sheriff is a racist, right? It's systemically racist. The sheriff's office in Wake County is systemically racist, and that's why they're denying black applicants pistol purchase permits, right? There's no other explanation. None is allowed. And if you think there's another explanation, if you're going to say, oh, it's more complex, well, you're racist. I'm sorry to inform you, but I'm not really sorry. This is the consistent application of the standard. You're racist for suggesting that there might be other factors at play besides race in why Three times as many black applicants than white applicants are rejected in Wake County. So, WRAL's parent company, owned by Jim Goodman, they're obviously all racists, right? Because they're trying to preserve a system that, as I just explained, is denying black people their constitutional rights. Yeah, they they want to continue denying black people their constitutional rights. Now, I don't know about you. I'm not a racist, though, like, obviously, WRAL and their editorial writer. Uh, I'm not a racist like they are. So I would like to see this Jim Crow era law repealed and uh, and for everybody to be treated equally. Are you against people being treated equally? All right, so I got some good news, and I got some bad news. What do you want to hear first? Good news. Good news? All right, good news. This is not my new intro. No, I'm kidding. The good news is Andrew Cuomo has had his international Emmy taken back. He has lost his Emmy. Did you know he won an Emmy? I did not. Yeah. For what? For, if I recall correctly, it was for his COVID briefings that were televised. I thought you were playing your rim shot. (laughs) No. No, that's true. The statement here from the Academy of Television Arts and Sciences, quote, the International Academy announced today that In light of the New York Attorney General's report and Andrew Cuomo's subsequent resignation as governor, it is rescinding his special 2020 International Emmy Award. His name and any reference to his receiving the award will be eliminated from International Academy materials going forward. Indeed. Right down the memory hole. So sorry. All right, so that was the good news. So does someone actually, like, physically take it from him? Like, do they, like, literally go into his house and (laughs) they find it on his mantle? And Well, I mean, he might have left it there along with his dog at the governor's mansion. Like, yeah. 
Did you hear that? He left his dog at the governor's mansion. He what? He left his dog behind. He did? It, mm-hmm. Uh, Captain is the dog's name. What is it with, like, Biden and Cuomo? Like, what is it with these Democrat executive office holders that they named their dogs ranks, you know? <laughs> it's, a th- it's a thing. It has to be formal. Yeah. I don't even remember. Because I think Biden's is... The, doesn't he have like major and somebody else? Anyway, um, so that was the good news that they they went to the governor's mansion to feed the dog that he left behind, and they uh, and then they 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 swiped the Emmy for, back from him, and they memory hold it. So they don't want anything to do with it. We don't want anybody to ever know that we ever gave this man an Emmy, even though they did, they did, and part of me is like. I don't think you should even be able to take those Emmys back. I think it should. I think the Emmy people need to live with that stain on their reputation in their materials forever as well. You know, because if they just get to wipe it all away, then it's like it never happened. And now they're not going to be culpable or or have any kind of responsibility in elevating the love gov up to this ridiculous position that he never earned. But I also do like the fact that they took the award back. So I'm kind of torn. I'm kind of torn. <laughs> so the real question is that th- that was my laugh. The real question is going to be, is what? he, he going to pull like an OJ Simpson and try and actually forcibly take it back? If they do take away, take it away from him. Right. Go like uh, arrange like a meet in a hotel room. Yeah. Yeah. And like kidnap some people, hold them at gunpoint to get his Emmy back. Yeah. Yeah. No, nah, I, I don't know. What do you think an Emmy is worth? Like, the, I mean, I mean, yes, yes, all the hard work and blah, blah, blah. But like, like monetary value. Like, could you melt that thing down? It's an international Emmy. It was for is to the TV appearances. Eh. I do find that interesting too. Are all the like are all the Emmys universal in terms of like how they're they're like how they're put together? Yeah, probably. Because my roommate had an Emmy for he works in TV. Yeah, and he had an Emmy for as a as a photog. But I was like, is that the same Emmy that you know? Andrew Cuomo gets, or you know, or Andrew Cuomo, yeah, probably. Really? Yeah, they're TV awards. They give out a billion of them. They, like, I know, but it, it seemed it, gold. Se- it seemed actually like pretty cheap. Like, yeah, they are. It seemed no different than the, like the little little league little trophy I got when I was six years old. Right. The real value is putting it on your resume. Ah, that's the real value. Because nobody gives themselves more awards than media. True. Because <laughs> nobody else recognizes the value of what we do here. Anyway, uh, the, that was the good news, that they have taken back his Emmy. They've pulled the plate off of it. They're going to put someone else's name and a different category on it for next year. The bad news, on his way out the door, Andrew Cuomo gave clemency to the San Francisco District Attorney's terrorist dad. That actually happened. Have you heard this? On his way out the door, while he's leaving his dog behind, because it was just a temporary arrangement, people. It was, it was just for the PR. Um, he granted clemency to David Gilbert, the Weather Underground terrorist guy, participant in the murderous Brinks Armored Car Heist, the father of Chessa Bowden, that's the DA out in San Francisco, the one that's 
not prosecuting any criminals. Right. A literal terrorist just got released by Andrew Cuomo, David Gilbert. And Dan McLaughlin at uh, National Review says it's a giant middle finger to New York law enforcement. Um, Gilbert was convicted of three counts of second-degree murder, four counts of first-degree robbery in 1983. He served 40 years of a 75-year-to-life sentence related to an incident in which he was the driver, but not the murderer. While incarcerated, Mr. Gilbert has made significant contributions to AIDS education and prevention programs. In prison? I got questions. Anyway, he has also worked as a student tutor, law library clerk, paralegal assistant, a teacher's aide, and an aide for various additional facility programs. At this time, Mr. Gilbert is the only individual still incarcerated with no possibility of parole in his lifetime. He will be referred to the parole board for potential release. That's who, among others, uh, got a commutation of his sentence by Andrew Cuomo on his way out the door. Do you remember people very, very concerned about who Trump might pardon? I do not want to hear a single thing from the left ever again about who gets pardons and clemency from Republicans ever again. You guys are releasing literal terrorists. When big real estate projects in San Francisco encounter resistance from nearby residents, developers traditionally respond by making concessions. Frequently, that means scaling back a project, right? Leading to the creation of less housing than originally envisioned. But one project finally took a different turn. One that reveals a lot about the state of California housing policy. Last year, DM Development announced plans to build a 290-unit building in the Portrero Hill neighborhood. The project was within walking distance of tech giants like Airbnb and Uber, and it featured dorm-style units that could be perfect for young, single tech workers. Potrero Hill residents demanded that the project, though, be scaled back, perhaps reduced even from seven stories down to six. What's up with that? One whole story, you're going to knock off one floor, and you're like, yes, we won that round! Six to seven stories, really? Okay. So what did the developer do? They added 10 stories on top of it. No, I'm sorry. Sorry. They added four on top of it to make it a 10-story building. They said, oh, really? The building just got taller. That's what they said. Instead of bending to the neighbor's wishes and dropping the height of the project, DM Development went into the went the opposite direction Increasing the proposed 80-foot building to 120 feet, raising the original number of units from 290 up to 450. That, according to the San Francisco Chronicle's J.K. Deneen, DM Development CEO Mark McDonald said he submitted the bigger plan after, quote, it was abundantly clear to us that the neighbors were not supportive of the lower-scale project. He said if we had gotten support for the original plan, we would have kept going down that path. But you didn't want that plan, so you're getting this one. (laughs) Which, this is, by the way, why San Francisco is like the hellscape it is. right? You've got this class of people, like nobody can afford to live there. 
because they cap all the buildings at a certain height in order to protect the the nature, the the community aesthetic that we have going on here in San Francisco. We don't want any taller buildings. And well, you don't have taller buildings, which means you don't have people living in taller buildings. And so now you've constrained the supply of housing, which then forces the price up. And that's why it costs, I think the last estimate I saw was somewhere in the neighborhood of like $14 billion for a studio apartment. I think that's roughly accurate. Um, California Senate Bill 35 apparently became law. It was legislation to boost housing construction in the state by limiting the authority of local governments over development projects. The legislation ultimately did become law, which is why DM development was able to ignore community opposition in Portrero Hill. And according to Timothy Lee, the author at, uh, of the piece at fullstackeconomics.com, he says that uh, this has stripped local residents of input into some real estate projects. A growing number of people think that excessive local influence over housing projects is a big economic problem. Uh, yes, it is, actually. In recent decades, California's thriving economy has generated rising demand for housing, but legal restrictions on housing, including laws that give local activists outsized influence, have prevented real estate developers from keeping up with that demand. As a result, rents and home prices in San Francisco have soared far above the national average. The people who live right near a proposed development care a lot about it. Think about this. This makes sense, right? You live right next door to a development, you're going to care a lot about that development. But people who don't live next door, they, they're not going to care. And they're not going to come down and say, I am here to forcefully say I am ambivalent about this project. Do what you want, right? They're not going to show up at your development meetings or your city council meetings, right? So what happens? The anti-growth progressives... <laughs> they prevent, and it's actually not just progressives, they, they, they fill out most of the ranks of the folks like this, but I have seen this, uh, this sentiment expressed on both sides of the political aisle, and usually it has to do with how close is this project to your house. That's usually what this comes down to, right? And it means that the loudest voices, this activist uh, uh, population, they have the most amount of influence, Legal restrictions on housing have prevented real estate developers from keeping up with the demand. And so every project in a modern city, though, is located near somebody. And so almost every effort to increase housing supply attracts opposition. Meanwhile, you got a lot of voters that may favor construction of more housing in general, right? Few of them, though, care enough to go to the planning meetings for any kind of specific project. So elected officials end up with a skewed impression of public opinion, believing that Every project is less popular than it really might be. As a result, even though more development would be good for almost everybody, we don't get very much of it. And this brings us to the NIMBYs, the Not In My Backyard. That's what it stands for, Not In My Backyard crowd. NIMBYs. They're homeowners. They tend to be affluent and eligible for AARP membership. They are parochial and obsessed with potential shortages of parking. <laughs> this is always... I ran into, oops, I'm sorry, I just hit the microphone there. I apologize, very unprofessional. But uh, this has always been one of the the funny things for me whenever you start talking about development in like your center, uh, your, in here in Charlotte, center city development, you get people that complain about parking. 
right? And they're like, ah, oh, the parking is terrible. Why are they doing development there? There's no parking. Parking is terrible. Which, by the way, traffic and parking is what you always will complain about as a uh, a resident of a city. You just it's parking and traffic. You're just not going to be because traffic is us, right? We are traffic. When I get in my car, I become traffic, right? I've got a uniform and everything, and. Uh, you're not going to be able to separate those two issues from city life. That's part of city life. Um, but it always struck me that the people who complain the loudest about there being no parking are people who then say they never go downtown <laughs> because it's too dangerous or it's too filled with traffic or I don't care to go there. I got everything I need in my neighborhood, right? They don't go down there, but they complain about not being able to go down there. But if they could go down there more easily, they still wouldn't. For better or worse, a recognizable villain is the NIMBYs. And having a recognizable villain is an effective way to overcome the collective action problem uh, inherent in political organizing. NIMBY activists have been hampering housing development and driving up housing prices for long enough that a lot of people are getting pretty fed up with it. So when the YIMBY-minded people, the yes-in-my-backyard people... When they read about what happened in San Francisco, they don't see a monstrosity. I've looked at the building. I mean, it's a big square. It's on the city block, and so it's a big square, and it's it's got some architectural features, but yeah. But by the way, part of that is if you want nicer-looking buildings, then, you know, incentivize nicer-looking buildings. Incentivize, and by, and by that I mean, like, you know, deregulate some of this stuff and make it easier to build so people have more money to put into the aesthetic uh, exterior work. Right. If they want to, like you're not going to see you don't see a lot of the aesthetically pleasing types of buildings so much nowadays as you used to like 100 years ago. A lot of those buildings are like classic now, but some of them when they were built at the time got a lot of opposition. I am an all of the above kind of guy. I want more variety. I want more architectural variety. But what do I know? Right. Just the radio guy. Brett Winterbull is up next. Stick around. News Talk 1110-993-WBT. That's it for the show. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. Don't break anything while I'm gone.